Welcome back to Lo and Behold. I'm your host, Ryan Stansel. You're listening to the third and final installment of our special series on the 20th anniversary of the Fisheries Reform Act, an act that changed the way coastal waters in North Carolina are fished and cared for. Today, we reflect on its successes and shortcomings. Commercial fishing in North Carolina has been going through the slow death throes for 20, 25 years. And what we're ending up with is uh, pretty much the bottom of the barrel. The, the people that have any sort of initiative, it's like a brain drain in a small community like ours in Columbia, where all the kids with any kind of pizzazz or smarts take off and go somewhere else. That's Willie Phillips, a wholesale and retail seafood dealer. Willie's a respected voice among the commercial fishing community. He's been an advocate for it for decades. His outlook is bleak, but he believes it will take young, savvy talent moving back to coastal communities to save commercial fishing. The individuals that we need back in the industry have to be positive and they have to contribute. Uh, I'm talking about to the society at large, not just their own little community. And they have to be business people first and foremost and they have to be able to survive in a, a changing capitalist economy and recognize the fact that um, it's not going to be like it was in the 50s or the 40s or the 30s. Yeah. And that it's a new time and you have to be flexible. Willie was on the Marine Fisheries Commission in the years following the Fisheries Reform Act and he was a founding member of NC Claw, the North Carolina Crabbers League of Aware Watermen. In the years following the FRA, Willie's seen commercial fishermen gradually pushed out of fishing as a result of increased regulations. He thinks this next generation of leadership must force the state to explicitly decide whether it does or does not want to have a commercial fishing economy. I would tell young people to get ready to fight like hell. And the only way to do it is to, to call the vote. And that vote is, are we going to have a commercial industry or not? And if we are, tell us what it's going to look like. Let us work on developing it and give us a future because right now we have none and we're not likely to get one. He's not the only one worried about the future of commercial fishing. Last year's commercial landings came in just under 66 million pounds, a fraction of the industry in its heyday. There were 2,636 active commercial fishing licenses in 2015, down from 4,367 in 2000. Local seafood markets across the nation have been undercut by imported seafood, which now accounts for nearly 90% of the seafood consumed in the United States. It's been 20 years since the Fisheries Reform Act, and fishery issues are as complicated today as they were back then. The Fisheries Reform Act was a compromise document. No one walked away from the reform thrilled, but most walked away agreeing it was better than what existed before. Over 1,200 North Carolinians engaged with the moratorium steering committee at public forums that informed the provisions in the FRA. And many people involved in the moratorium speak highly of the process that led to the reform itself. Moratorium Steering Committee Chairman Bob Lucas. I think it's one of the best things that I've ever seen done 
it was just so many people involved and it was refreshing to see them trying to make it better can you duplicate something like that yeah but man you you I mean you remember all this is for free and I got all these people working just hours upon hours so it was it's something almost unique I think in hindsight it was it was great Dan Whittle, an environmentalist and then policy advisor for the North Carolina Assistant Secretary of Natural Resources. So I think the biggest lesson is, uh, is maybe one of process, is, uh, is starting off by saying everyone has a legitimate you know, interest in this uh, policy debate. Everyone needs to be heard. Uh, what the Moratorium Steering Committee did is they convened these gatherings where, where uh, people came and could be heard and could, could talk and could be listened to. And um, that was a valuable lesson. And it showed that what appeared to be irreconcilable differences were not that irreconcilable. You know, since Governor Hunt, I haven't seen a governor in the, in, in the state of North Carolina who's had the patience, had the passion, and had the foresight to actually spend the time and the money yeah, at the end of the day, however, the legislature and the executive branch have a duty to lead. Uh, I think that's often sacrificed. Often, if, if the government's in the middle of a resource dispute, I think they're often afraid to choose. They're afraid to lead. They're really desperate for consensus. If they don't get it, they're paralyzed. I think some of that happened in North Carolina, but I think at the end of the day, Senator Baznight and Governor Hunt came together and basically agreed on a on, on legislation that would move things forward. Dan Whittle is right. The divide between commercial fishermen, recreational fishermen, and environmental conservationists remains tense. Despite the sweeping reform, there is continued disagreement over commercial fishing techniques and gear, the various types of licensing required to fish, stock assessment methods, and regulatory decisions. Today, folks involved with fisheries are questioning the accountability and credibility of the Marine Fisheries Commission and the Division of Marine Fisheries, the two entities charged with creating and enforcing fisheries management policies. They are responsible for overseeing the fisheries management plans that most stakeholders supported as a more rational structure for taking care of the resource. Stakeholders are disappointed that coastal habitat protection plans don't have more teeth, and the composition of the Marine Fisheries Commission draws criticism. The problem with fisheries is not just Bob Lucas and everybody else catching too many of them. There's other problems such as water quality and habitat. So the first thing was mandate the fishery management plans. That was the key. But as I said, you, you've got to have the habitat and water protection as well. So it also mandated the development of coastal habitat and so forth, and that was done in other commissions. But you know what? All of that is worth the paper it's written on unless you provide the funding to do it. Protecting fisheries habitats and keeping scientific track of their health ensures a future for North Carolina fisheries. And in theory, up-to-date, scientifically grounded data gives regulators the information they need to adjust existing policies and create new policies. In part two, you heard concern that the coastal habitat protection plans lacked a budget and an enforcement mechanism. 
longtime reporter Frank Tercy. I think it's a wonderful concept, but that's all it is. Nothing's ever been done, um, to my knowledge. I mean, they, they, they update the plan. They, they were supposed to integrate, you know, permitting, and I, I mean, I don't really see any evidence of that. Um, I mean, I, I never hear it, you know, in any, any discussion about why something shouldn't be done is because it violates some um, habitat protection plan. Um, so those kinds of attempts of centralized planning look good on surface and um, are well-intentioned, but they never really work. Continued water quality concerns plus the present reality of climate change threaten the health of our fisheries. Recreational angler Dick Brain believes ecosystem management plans must include climate change as a factor. Fishery populations are moving and we have to we have to be able to, to, to adapt and be able to manage fisheries that we have never seen before and we're going to lose fisheries that we've had for a long time. So I guess managing by fishery management plan would, would hopefully promulgate that. I, I, I don't know for sure. I mean, there, there's been big changes in the fisheries since I was fishing on the piers in, in the 60s. I mean, in terms of ethics and what you saw and what you caught. I mean, we, we used to catch several hundred king mackerel a year off the end of these piers at Topsail, and now they catch dozens. So something's shifting. Fish are shifting. We certainly don't see the menhaden we saw back in the 60s and 70s. And they were everywhere. Now you just don't see that anymore. Journalist Sandy Siemens-Ross thinks commercial fishermen are often used as the scapegoats to fishery issues more closely tied to pollution and climate change. There's less water quality testing. There's uh, less restrictions on stormwater runoff. There's less protection of marshlands and wetlands when it comes to, to building and developing. And those were all things that were critical to the habitat protection plans. Um, in this latest session, they there was a stipulation that they had to report periodically to um, one of the committees in the legislature. And now they have changed that to they can report if there's any change. So there won't be regular updates to the General Assembly anymore on the progression of those plans. If you don't have good water quality and, and good habitat for fisheries, they don't spawn. They don't live. And when species decline, the ones regulated are not the polluters, they're the fishermen. And a lot of the fisheries regulations that have gone into place in the last 20 years are directly a result of, of pollution and habitat degradation rather than fisheries actions. You can't keep mitigating loss of environmental things needed by, by clamping down on the fishermen. It's not difficult to find a fisherman, commercial or recreational alike, who has a problem with the way the Marine Fisheries Commission works. And unfortunately, there is not an appeals process for marine fishery recommendations, which makes it challenging for citizens to hold the Division of Marine Fisheries accountable, a provision some fishery advocates wish had been included in the FRA. Here's Dick Brame. I wish it had provided for a way for citizens to sue the Division of Marine Fisheries for not acting. It didn't do that. I remember asking a, a, a Diener attorney, I said, it says right here in the fisheries manual that you should conserve, protect, educate, promote, do all this. 
And he looked at me and said, but nowhere does it say they have to be good at it. So there's, there, there's literally, no, there's very little way for a citizen to sue the division to make, or the, the commission for them to do their job. Accountability is at the heart of most concerns interviewees shared with us. Jess Hawkins, former marine biologist with the Division of Marine Fisheries, was active in the moratorium process and in fishery policy and believes the current commission and division aren't executing the FRA's vision and intent. The structure we had, our system that we had here was more progressive than what the federal government has. Now the federal government system is more progressive than what state has. Our, our, our state was looked upon as a system to replicate and if I was another state now, I would not want to replicate what we're doing here. I think it worked very well uh, up until, um, you know, the late uh, 2000s. And here in recent years, I don't think the Fisheries Reform Act has been fulfilling what its visionaries uh, had intended it to be. The, committee, the committees quit, me quit meeting frequently to try to be progressive and proactive on dealing with issues. They became reactive, so they only would meet when the um, uh, division had an issue or the commission had an issue that they wanted advice uh, for or were made to have advice for. The uh, leadership at the division convinced the General Assembly to eliminate uh, a fair amount of the advisory committees. Now they used the money as the main reason for decreasing it because our state was going through budgetary, uh, tough budgetary times, but most of the people when I worked with them, they had been willing to go to a meeting uh, without getting paid. And they were paid only $14 a night they would serve the state as an advisor, even if you didn't pay them anything. Bob Lucas, who chaired the moratorium steering committee, is also concerned because the commission no longer engages regularly with the advisory committees that were established to help consolidate and organize citizen oversight. I mean, I remember going to the people in these, in these towns and saying, look, I hope this is not the last time that we hear from you. We need to set up a mechanism so that if we're gonna do something on trout, we know what the people in Pittsburgh think are here, and so we set up the advisory committees so that we would get that flow of information to the decision makers. The reason I say that is I heard that when after I was out and everything that the um, funding was so tight they couldn't pay the travel expense for the people on the committees. So I don't know how much it how much all of that went down but uh, so I know it was a struggle with with money but it's like anything else if you're going to do something like this you you got to, you got to give the resources to it to make it work and so the real question is is there a commitment in two places one in the division does does the division really want this to work then two is the Marine Fisheries Commission. I don't care what you have on paper. These can be some of the best ideas ever was. I don't know. But unless you appoint people that have a passion for it and want it to work, it's not going to work. If you put political hacks on commissions, you're not going to get good results. Commercial fisherman Pam Morris agrees too. I think in the beginning, um, I think in the beginning the process worked good with all the advisory committees. The emphasis on the committees went down after the new director came on board. What public input there was is not being considered by the commission at all. 
that's not good. So, I mean, we had good people on the commission at first. You know, people that believed in <clears throat> hearing others out and getting the whole story. It's not that way at all now for many of the commission members in my view. There's been talk at revising the FRA, even scrapping it. The debate and drama surrounding fisheries policy is usually framed as recreational versus commercial fishing. But it's a mistake to simplify the issue to that. Healthy fisheries, healthy water, and healthy coastal habitat are issues of concern for all North Carolinians. Jess Hawkins believes at the end of the day, commercial fishermen and recreational fishermen have more in common than we, and perhaps they, are led to believe. Now, there are people that are really, really vocal advocates on the internet and in, and in media that uh, say that, that fish should be for only one user group and fish should be uh, for, uh, uh, only for a certain use. And so there are problems, but it's, it's not as what the extreme recreational fishermen would uh, convey. Just like you have extreme commercial fishermen that say that they need to catch all anytime they want and don't put any restriction on these. Now, I don't run into those as much anymore. I used to run those uh, in my career, but the people I talk to now are willing to accept a reasonable management measures that allow them that uh, keep the resource they're trying to catch sustainable because it's in their benefit from a business standpoint, even if they didn't have any stewardship ethic. But most of them do have a stewardship ethic because they realize that if they don't, they might not be able to work next week or next year or five years from now. So there's same thing with a recreational fisherman. The regular recreational fisherman has that because he or she will want to come catch those fish. North Carolina politics look a lot different today. So does our coast. Millions of dollars continue to be pumped into the coastal tourism industry. And as property taxes go up, as old industries that once sustained them are gone, Many of these historic tiny fishing villages in places along the coast are now facing hard realities, and the topic of fisheries has less command in the press than it did back then. Former Governor Bev Perdue. I think the big difference now with the legislature is that they are so busy. The legislators are so busy and the issues are so complex that the squeaky wheel really does get the oil, and I wonder if they're were marches like there were around the issue today, and if there were associations that were as energized and organized around fisheries as there were when I was involved, if the passion wouldn't reemerge. Willie Phillips knows firsthand the struggles commercial fishermen face. He's worked with hundreds of them. There is no hope in the industry right now. I mean, it's, there's just, there's no prospects for for anything turning around. I mean, I'd, I'd love to say different. I mean, I'm sitting here holding, you know, millions of dollars worth of facilities specifically for commercial fishing. But the reality is it's going away unless something happens fast. These guys are, are you know, bleeding dollars here, trying to hang on, thinking that things are gonna change somehow. And the way we're going, it's not, it won't happen. Phillips argues for a radical reframing of commercial fishing, one centered in conservation and in stewardship. We don't need the food. We're getting 90% of it from overseas. That'll only continue. They're of the other value that they bring to the table, the potential that they bring to the table as being the stewards of the public trust resource, of being people who are out there on a daily basis, 
able to record and pass on to the other people within the state that depend on their seafood the conditions that their waters are in. It's a huge, huge population in state has no idea what's happening out here when it comes to our waters and whatnot. They just flush the toilet and it goes into the Roanoke River in Roanoke, Virginia and winds its way through 200 and some other sewage treatment systems before it gets down here and gets dumped down into the sound and they think, hey, hey, great. You know, it's not around my house. I can't see it from here. But if they understand how important it is for the, the overall vitality of our earth, our ecosystem, our Gaia, then um, for some it makes a difference. We should be deifying it instead of destroying it, degrading it. And the commercial fishermen have an intrinsic role in that, can have, by both supplying the, the resource for food consumption and the mental resource to know that you're doing the right thing for nature and the ocean, which sustains everybody one way or another. So. To me, commercial fishing is not about how many tons of product protein you can dump on the dock. It's about the balance you can achieve. Thank you for listening to the special series of Lo and Behold, the Fisheries Reform Act, a podcast by Bitten Grain. This series was made possible by the North Carolina Sea Grant Community Collaborative Research Grant Program and the interviewees who gave their time to share their story. Collaborators included Jimmy Johnson of the Albemarle Pamlico National Estuary Partnership, oral historian and archivist Mary Williford, Barbara Garrity Blake of Duke University Marine Lab, Karen Willis Amspacker of Core Sound Waterfowl Museum and Heritage Center, Sandra Davidson, Baxter Miller, and Ryan Stansel of Benton Grain, and journalist Susan West.